This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be beginning in verse 31. And as you're turning there, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles provided on the sides here. We'd love for you to grab one of those. Let that be a guide for you as we go through our time together. This morning, you'll find our passage on page 808 of those Bibles. Please take it. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. I want to mention two things in the outset. If you're interested in an outreach opportunity to a local elementary school, interested in reaching out and kind of getting the gospel into an elementary school nearby the church, um, come talk to me after the service. Send me an email, uh, however you want to send a pigeon, whatever it is, to talk to me. I'd love to, uh, to talk to you about that. Um, also, uh, there are these Easter invite cards. So it's already getting time for Easter. And there are some of these that are stacked in the very back table back there. And there are some on the outside in the kind of the, the entryway. Uh, we'd love for you to grab some of these and use these as invitations to our Good Friday service and to our Easter Sunday service that are actually right around the corner coming up in April. So we'd love for you to do that and uh, prayerfully invite folks to come and join us. And uh, we'll be praying for that process as we get closer. Let me begin our time with prayer, and then we'll look to God's Word together. Father, we thank You for this day, and what a blessing it is to be in the assembly of Your people. We thank You for the way that You have providentially arranged this day, that all the things that we have experienced uh, this past week, leading up to, to now, to sitting here, hearing Your Word, We pray that you would give us that kind of a mindset that you are intentionally having us here now to hear from you. So we do pray that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us to see, open our ears to hear what you would have us to hear. We know that there are so many things here in your word, so many things that you would teach us, but apart from you, apart from your grace, we can't walk away with nothing. We can walk away empty unchanged. And so, Lord, we just depend on you. And we pray that you would especially show yourself to be mighty to save, that you would show yourself to be powerful today as we look at your word and see, Jesus, your authority on display. See your power on display. Lord, we pray that that would extinguish our fears and run away, drive away the darkness and give us new hope, Lord. Lord, may this text, may this this scene, this day, one day in your life, Lord, may it land on us in a fresh, powerful way that can only be from you. So we ask this, Lord, for your glory and uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. How do you respond when you bump into someone who has some sort of authority, some level of authority in your life. Maybe it's driving down the highway and you see that parked patrol car. You instinctively slow down, right? Or maybe maybe I'm the only one. We slow down, we see that, that, that police officer. I wonder, students, if you get nervous when those research papers are passed out with the grades on them. Uh, even though you, you, you know you've done what you're supposed to do, you follow the instructions, but man, when those grades get passed out, 
our hearts be a little bit faster. When your boss calls you into the office, immediately sometimes our minds will go to, okay, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. Things that we've done wrong. Maybe there's certain people when their name shows up on the caller ID, you just begin to fret because you know there's some level of authority they have over your life. We understand as believers that authority is ultimately good because it's rooted in God's own authority. It's rooted in who God is as our creator. But in a, in a broken world, we know that many of us are suspicious of authority. Deep down, perhaps we actually bristle under it. Certainly, we've seen the abuse of authority in our life at some level. If you haven't yet, you, you will. So it complicates life when we know that authority is good, but often the thing that's freshest on our minds are bad examples of authority. But we need to be reminded as, and, and be shaped by God's Word that the essence of sin is, in fact, the rebellion uh, against authority, the rebellion against God's good design over us. So we've actually turned away from Him and taken the driver's seat. We've sat on the throne and put ourselves in charge. That's what sin is. But in God's mercy, He has sought us out. Even in our rebellion, even when we have said, we, God, are the authority, not you, or we've bowed down to idols in our lives as our authority, or even perhaps there's been a demonic influence of authority, like we'll see in our passage this morning. In His mercy, God pursues us and rescues us and calls us to Himself. He does that because Jesus Christ possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And He's come to redeem a people for Himself. He doesn't abuse His authority. He uses it for the glory of God and for the good of His people. Last week we saw, as we were looking at Luke chapter 4, Him stand up in His hometown synagogue and read these words in Luke chapter 4. Verse 18, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he was literally run out of town. They tried to kill him when he said, This prophecy, these words are fulfilled today, in your hearing. They are about me. And, synagogue member, they're about you. You are in need of rescue, and I am the one God has sent to rescue you and redeem you. I've been anointed to do that. So the people heard that message, but they didn't believe that Jesus had the authority to act on it, to do what He said He would do. They didn't believe He was the one. And so Jesus left Nazareth, and as far as we can tell, never to return. But right after that rejection, Luke, I think in his kindness, places this passage before us where the authority of Jesus is on center stage for us to see, for our benefit. So in our passage, we're going to see Jesus' authority as a teacher. No one preaches and teaches and speaks the word like Jesus. His authority over the, the, the demonic realm over Satan and demons. So he's going to confront and cast out demons. And then his authority over disease, over sickness. He's going to heal people intentionally and completely from sickness and disease. 
So Jesus is going to do all this. He's going to change everything with a word. And so Luke wants us to see Jesus for who he is this morning. So that's the kind of the outline of our passage. If you're thinking about those realms of authority that we see with Jesus that are shown here. First, we're going to see his authority as a teacher. It's in verses 31 and 32. And then kind of at the end of the passage, we see his commitment to preaching the word in verses 42 to 44. So authority as a teacher. Then we're going to see his authority over demons in this passage, uh, in this section in verses 33 to 37. The healing of this man with a demon. And then finally, number three, his authority over disease. His authority over disease in verses 38 to 41. Jesus has all authority as our Lord and Savior. Luke is showing us that and wants us, calling us now to come to him to submit to Him, to worship Him. May we have eyes to see Jesus for who He is. So let's look at the first way He illustrates that as a teacher. Luke shows us Jesus' authority as a teacher. So the the scene is now shifting from Nazareth to Capernaum. And Capernaum is this thriving kind of fishing community by the Sea of Galilee. It's some 680 feet below sea level, which is why I think Luke says there in verse 31 that He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And so again, we find Jesus, like we saw in the last passage, teaching in the synagogues, which we saw last week was that was his custom. But we get this time stamp in verse 31 that's significant on the Sabbath, which is, which is important, not just because it's on the Sabbath, but the rest of this passage is all going to take up basically one long day. In fact, into the night, into the next day. So we're going to get to see a day in the life of Jesus. And this is a very significant day, especially for the people at Capernaum. Uh, And so we're going to keep that in mind as we go through this this story, that we're describing one kind of long day. Uh, And the focus here at the beginning is again on Jesus' teaching. So keep looking there at your uh, Bible there in verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And so Jesus' teaching, notice specifically his word, has authority. And so on one level, we can see this in comparison to the way that people would usually teach in the synagogue. The usual teachers that that the people would be hearing mainly be the Pharisees, the scribes, who are going to be relying on tradition, other authorities that they're going to point to, other religious teachers Uh, One author says that they are in constant bondage to quotation marks. They're only kind of quoting from what other people have said. And in Mark's account, he he says that Jesus spoke with authority not as the scribes in uh, Mark 1.22. One famous rabbi said it this way. He said, quote, Nor have I ever in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. So it's almost this tape recording of the secondhand kind of teaching that's just being passed down from one authority to the next. So this was the model. A student would be like his teacher. Jesus says something similar, but his reference is God the Father. He says in John 5, 19, uh, truly, truly, by the way, Jesus says amen at the beginning of sentences. That's what that is, truly, truly. Like sometimes I get an amen after I say something, okay? He says it at the beginning. You can prepare yourself. This is going to be good. This is going to be true. That's the, that's the kind of authority that he speaks with. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So he says what the Father says. He does what the Father does. When Jesus spoke, God's voice went forth. So not only does he say things like this text in Isaiah is actually about me, but he handles the passages independently. Like someone who had firsthand knowledge of the situation, who was actually there when it happened. Ever been around someone who was just overly confident in everything they said? It sounded like was absolute truth. Ironclad, lock it down. And then you just later kind of do a little bit of a fact check and you realize, okay, this person just, they talk about that, that's the way they talk. They're confident, but not everything they're saying is true. That's not Jesus. He speaks with the confidence, the, the boldness, the authority of God, and he speaks the truth. He literally preaches God's words. He says things like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Not what Rabbi Halal says, but what I say. He's the one anointed by the Spirit to speak the very words of God. He did this with Satan in the wilderness. If you remember, he quoted Deuteronomy. He's going to do it in the Sermon on the Mount. And even in his, after his resurrection, as he's with the, the men on the road to Emmaus, he's going to go through all the Scriptures and teach them the things concerning himself. Jesus was a expositor of the word. And friends, this is just this is one reason why we focus all of our teaching and preaching discipleship on the word of God. The very words, that's the center of what we want to be our to to, to base our teaching and discipleship on. We want to want to preach the Bible and and give you the very words of God. So notice the priority Jesus places actually on preaching in his ministry. Skip down there to verse 42. This is after kind of, this, kind of the end of this long day. All of these miracles have taken place, which we're going to see. And when it was day, so kind of through the night, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Okay, so at the end of this long day of ministry, he's trying to withdraw himself to a lonely place. The other gospel uh, writers tell us to pray. Um, but the people are following him. And, and, you know, they've seen his power on display. They know what he can do specifically, not just teaching, but healing disease and casting out demons. And so they're begging him to stay with them. And, and I don't know that we can blame them. Uh, Jesus, we don't want you to leave. Obviously, think of what Capernaum could be if you stayed here. A place where there is no sickness, no demonic um, activity, no disease. A haven for all to come and be free from the darkness. But Jesus' mission overrides, overrules their request. He's come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other villages as well, he says. I was sent for this purpose, to preach the good news of the kingdom. Uh, this is the first mention of that, that kind of phrase. going to be very important in Luke's gospel, the, the kingdom of God. This is Jesus preaching the kingdom. And much is going to be said about that as we go through and, and think about it. Um, but what we're seeing before our eyes right now in Luke's gospel is the inbreaking, 
the coming in, you might say the inauguration of the kingdom of God into the darkness of the world. There is, it's like this announcement saying the king is here. Remember John the Baptist's words of saying the, the valleys will be lifted up and the mountains will be brought down to prepare a way for the king. There's an inbreaking of the kingdom and we know that because the king shows up and he begins to dethrone the enemy. He did that in chapter 4 at the beginning where he dethrones Satan himself. who He goes after and he tries to tempt him and Jesus um, succeeds over those temptations. So think of the kingdom of God as God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. So there's past and present and future components to this. We'll see as we go through Luke's gospel. It was The kingdom was promised in the past. There would be a king who would come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He's going to overturn Satan's dominion on the earth, all the effects of sin. And now we see this present reality of the kingdom, which, by the way, I think is where we are now, still today, in this inaugurated place of breaking in of the kingdom with the incarnation, the ministry of Jesus, him defeating Satan, ultimately on the cross, and he continues this battle with him throughout Luke's gospel and the, the, the kind of the forces of darkness. But then ultimately the future component is when Jesus will come again and the kingdom will be consummated. He'll come in judgment and then wipe away all, all evidences of this dark kingdom of sickness and disease and, and Satan and demons will be defeated forever. So we, we, we live in this present kind of already of the kingdom coming, but we look to the not yet, the the consummation of the kingdom. So just just put yourself, just like you're here this morning in church, listening to a a message, put yourself in the synagogue, listening to the words of Jesus. Jesus is the preacher. He spoke like no other. I mean, you never want the sermon to end. You feel like he's speaking just to you. I know that's how you all feel every Sunday, but you have to imagine someone even better like Jesus. I love these little snapshots that Luke gives us about Jesus that help us see him for who he was, like the priority that he places on the word, the preaching of the word. I think some of us need to see just a picture here, just to kind of step into the practical realm for a minute of Jesus saying no to something. Did you notice that? He's like he gets he gets an offer to stay and do ministry and he says no. To something that's actually really good. Some of us need to need to see that. Okay? Some of us don't have a problem saying no. I understand that. Some of us need to see this. It's good to see that it's 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 not always right to say yes to every single opportunity, even when the opportunities are good for us to do. There ought to be a priority, uh, like a, a filter that we run through every, all these opportunities that we would say yes and no to. Jesus is not afraid to say no. I don't think Jesus feels guilty about saying no here. He keeps the priority of the word first and his mission first, and we should do the same. So we should, we should take that and, and process that and apply that to our own hearts and to our own lives. We should be reminded that all authority that we have as a church or that the elders have or that I would have as a pastor or a preacher is is a derived authority from the words of this man, the words of God. 
So we don't have authority in and of ourselves. We're called to submit to His authority, especially His Word. His Word to us in the Scriptures. So this is why the apostles call us, you know, in 2 Timothy 4.2, to preach the Word, rightly handle the Word of truth. So our church will either stand or fall on God's Word. We will either be an irrelevant kind of echo chamber in bondage to quotation marks of the culture or what other people think we should do or psychology or we'll be a people of the Word. Jesus speaks authoritatively and then He commissions us to faithfully make disciples using His words. Using His words. That we would hear His words and we would speak those and teach those and, and apply those to one another. We would seek to obey those words. We would apply those words. In our, in our church services, we would pray those words, sing those words, memorize those words. We're called to, 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 to see the authority of the word here that we see ultimately in Christ. So we see he is a faithful, authoritative teacher. But let's look at the second illustration Luke gives us about his authority. So number two, if you're taking notes, his authority over demons. His authority over demons. So let's look at this episode here. We'll look at it as a whole, and then I'll just make some observations. So, so look at verse uh, 33. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, in their midst he came out of him, having done him no harm. So just a few observations about this scene. The first one is that Satan and demons are real. Satan and demons are real. We live in a culture, a Western culture, that has essentially removed, for all the sane people, essentially removed any part of kind of the unseen world from any kind of, kind of credible way to understand life. But we're biblicists, aren't we? Our, our worldview is grounded in the Scriptures, not our experience, not the kind of Western way of thinking, not in, in horror movies or whatever else we may get where we get our information. We get our information about life from the Scriptures. And so, so pay attention to the way Paul describes uh, to, to a Christian church, um, kind of this reality. In Ephesians 6, verse 12. Listen to the way he describes kind of the demonic, the unseen realm. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Did you notice his language of authority? Forces, powers, rulers. And, and, and Paul isn't saying this is all just made up. He's saying this is what we wrestle with. This is a reality, believer. It's much easier to push this aside than to grapple with it. But we need to understand this man in the synagogue is not depressed. He's not dealing with his, his childhood wounds. He's not schizophrenic with multiple personality disorder, he is under the personal domination, the authority of a fallen angel, a supernatural being 
Who is trying to cause him spiritual and physical harm? We just need to have a, a biblical, true category for this reality. And we need to see that demons are opposed to God and everything having to do with his rule and his people. Just like we saw Satan tempt Jesus to throw himself down from a high place, we're going to see him do this over and over, throw people down, have them hurt themselves. That, that shouldn't surprise us that he wants to destroy. He wants to destroy God and the image bearers of God. And that's true still today. We shouldn't be surprised that the frequency of demonic activity and encounter is so high in Jesus' ministry. Uh, they're on the offensive, the, the defensive. They see their doom staring at them in the face. And it's all hands on deck. We have to believe there are only so many demons. And as the world's population grows and grows and grows, they have to be strategic. Where are they going to spend their time? Where are they going to spend their attack? And where else but the ministry of Jesus? Now, we can speculate about maybe if or how things happen less in our day today, but I think likely it comes down to things that we simply haven't experienced ourselves or have but have different categories for understanding them. But we need to remember Martin Luther's words from his famous hymn, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. So places where the gospel is breaking new ground. Places where the enemy senses faithful work that's a threat. We should expect spiritual opposition. Here a demon shows up in church, right? Synagogue. He's described as a spirit of an unclean demon, which would, which would point to maybe perhaps a particular nasty, filthy, evil character that this demon has, or just how he specifically attacks this, this man. But either, either way, when the, when the demon comes into close proximity with Jesus, notice what happens. He, he cries out. And if you can imagine the sound of that demonic voice coming out of a kind of a normal human being, the English, the ESV, translate the, the phrase kind of ha, but it's something like leave us alone, let us be, get away. Why are you bothering us? Have you come to destroy us? Right? So maybe that's a subtle threat. So Jesus, if you destroy me, you're going to destroy this guy that I'm my host as well. Either way, the demon is clearly oppressed. He is unnerved by Jesus' presence. He is afraid of Jesus. You need to make note of that. He is afraid of Jesus. He fears that Jesus has come to destroy him. And he's right, ultimately. He knows the score. On this topic of Satan and demons and evil spirits, I think sometimes we get lulled into what you know, theologians would call a kind of a dualism, where there's basically good guys and bad guys, God versus Satan, um, the guys in black versus the guys in white. We watch Star Wars, we know how that works. Um, and with this cosmic battle of good versus evil, who's going to win? That is not the story of the Bible. Jesus is clearly seen as supreme all over the Scriptures. He has authority over the enemy. And the demons know it. They know who Jesus is. This demon says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. So, so this is another way of saying the Son of God or the Messiah. They know Jesus. James says in James 2, you know this verse. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe 
and shudder. So the demons believe in Jesus. What would, you, what would you do if I told you, well, we're reading the Gospel of Luke and we're seeing a bold proclamation of who Jesus is. We're seeing immediate obedience. When Jesus says a word, there's an immediate obedience. I don't know if you would guess that was, I'm talking about demons. But that's exactly what we see happening. They, 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 they know who Jesus is, but they're not saved. They're not believing savingly. They, they obey Jesus out of compulsion, not, not, not willingly. They acknowledge who He is, but they don't worship Him. They don't love Him. So here's our application. Beware of a demonic faith. A faith that can answer all the questions about Jesus correctly. Give me that test. I can do it. I know who He is. We can answer it all the way to hell. Right? This is why we, we, when we teach the Gospel, we, we not only give the content of the Gospel, but the necessity of a response a personal response to Jesus, namely repentance and faith, an acknowledgement of our sin before a holy God and that Christ has come to live a righteous life that we couldn't live and die an atoning death. That means he paid the penalty for our sin. God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross and he purchased a people for himself. And then Jesus rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. He canceled, he severed the power and the root of sin and death. That's all good news. But it means nothing unless we respond to it. And we turn away from a life of sin and self and being the authority in our life and put our faith and trust in Jesus alone. Repentance and faith. Turn away from sin. Put our faith and trust in Jesus. And follow Jesus. Have a personal faith with Jesus, a knowing and loving and worshiping relationship with Jesus. We know demons can go to church. It's not about church attendance. Demons can go to Sunday school. They can do religious things all day long, but you won't find a demon worshiping, loving, following, submitting to Jesus. And so here Luke gives us one more testimony about the identity of Jesus. If you're reading this and you're just kind of wondering, what does the Bible say about Jesus? We've seen these multiple testimonies, haven't we? From angels, the Father Himself, from the heavens. This is my beloved Son. In His temptations, we see Him victorious over Satan. We say what Jesus says about Himself in His first sermon. And now even demons proclaim that He is the Son of God. But Jesus even shows authority over what the demon can and can't say, doesn't he? He rebukes him and silences him with a word. Notice there's no spells, there's no incantations, there's no ceremony, no incense. He simply says, be silent and come out. And the man is thrown down, but he comes away unhurt, unharmed. So if that was a subtle threat from the demon, it was an empty threat. This man is perfectly fine. And imagine the freedom and the joy that he experienced immediately. And then the first thing he sees is the face of Jesus Christ. Put yourself in his shoes. Look at the way that Luke concludes this little scene in verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. 
So again, amazed at his authority, amazed at his word, just one word and the demons flee. Martin Luther had something to say about that too, didn't he? He said, and though his world, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. John promised that one coming after him, John the Baptist, would be mightier than he was. He spoke of Jesus. Later, Jesus is going to say, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is saying, I am the stronger man and I've come to take back what Satan has acquired, what he has stolen. He is the mighty one. So he's shown this publicly that he has authority over Satan and demons. John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That work has begun. The kingdom is breaking in. And we'll say more about this interaction that Jesus has with, with demons as we go through. But I think some important things we need to see here are just right here, aren't they? Here at the beginning, don't be afraid. Don't be enamored with the demonic. Jesus has authority over demons. Look to Jesus. Flee to Jesus. Finally, let's see how Luke illustrates his authority over disease. That's number three, if you're following along with your notes. Number three, Jesus' authority over disease. Remember now, this is the same day. I, I think it would be time for a break, okay, for me. Siesta. Every, I don't know if you've ever had a day like this, a long day that would never end. Jesus has been at it since, since early on. And now it's not even nighttime yet. We pick it up in verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. Just a couple of quick observations here. As we're going through, Simon, we know, is going to be later uh, renamed named Peter by Jesus. He is the Peter, the disciple, the apostle. Uh, he's going to be called to follow Jesus in the very next chapter. And here we see that he lives in Capernaum and that he was married. So Peter was married. It's his mother-in-law that's sick. Uh, Paul mentions that, that Peter was married in 1 Corinthians 9.5 as well. Tradition says that Peter's wife was very involved in the ministry, especially with women. So just kind of keep that in mind as we're thinking about Peter and the disciples coming up. This phrase that she was uh, ill with a high fever, it is actually a different term than some of the other authors use. I think Luke is just, just showing us a little bit of his kind of medical background here. This is, this is just a way, kind of a term that just says, yes, yeah, she's got a high fever. She's very sick, so much so that they bring it to Jesus' attention after kind of all that has already happened that day, I think that gives us an understanding that, okay, she's really in trouble. You know, a high fever can be very, uh, very dangerous. <clears throat> and again, I just think it's important as we read these passages to just, just pause and put ourselves in these situations, not just read through quickly, but I don't know if you remember the last time you were sick, perhaps with a high fever, um, and, and how bad that actually was. And how much you were thinking, man, I think it might be better just to not even be alive right now than to have this high fever. 
where you're aching all over. And, and for me, it's TMI, uh, wanting to throw up. That's my immediate reaction to high fever. So keep your distance if I have a high fever. You're, immediate, you're freezing one minute and you're hot, burning up the next minute. You can't do any, anything, especially if you're a guy. You're like, I'm done. Count me out for the week. And of all days for Jesus to come to your house, he comes to the day when you have this fever, this high fever. So, so his mother-in-law is laid up. She can't, do, she can't do anything. And so they tell Jesus about it, and we read what happens in verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. Uh, I think the way Luke describes his healing is interesting, don't you? That he uses the same word that, that Jesus, you know, rebuked the demon, that he's rebuking uh, the, the fever. How do you rebuke a fever? Right? Does this suggest maybe there's kind of an evil spirit behind the fever? I think our knee-jerk reaction is no, like just relax. There's probably an infection and he's, you know, got a fever. But there are examples, at least I looked at, I found one in Luke of an evil spirit, kind of demonic oppression taking the form of an illness or a disease. So Luke 13, verse 11, you can just jot that down and think about it. But, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. But I do think in this passage, Luke kind of clearly differentiates between sickness and demonic possession. Uh, we'll see that as they all, because they're, they're, they're all coming to Jesus. Luke describes them differently. We do know that sickness is a result of sin. It's a result of the fall, not, a, not necessarily a particular sin, but of being in a fallen world, having bodies affected by, by sin. And so Jesus' rebuke of the fever, again, I think it's this picture of him bringing in the kingdom and reversing the effects of sin. So he's turning back the darkness. And I, I think about those, those times when we read in, in, of Narnia and C.S. Lewis talking about Aslan being on the move and the winter just starting to kind of melt away. The effects of the world are, are changing. They're seeing something's different. That's what we're seeing happen. So, so I don't think we should conclude that every sickness has a demon behind it. Um, I don't think it also means that God is going to always heal us of our diseases. He, he certainly does do that. And I believe he still does do that. And we should still pray that he would do that. Pray in faith, asking God with all of our heart and soul that he would heal our diseases, heal and take away cancer and do what we could, we could never do on our own for his glory. We should pray that. But we should also understand and see the times when Jesus doesn't heal everyone. Right? And, and when we see God actually using affliction and suffering and pain in our lives. Jesus is still the great physician. One, one person compared it to the way the doctor uses chemotherapy to kill cancer cells. That sickness often kills and can kill our self-sufficiency and draws us out into trusting God even in the midst of our own weakness. So all of our suffering and sickness and affliction, we know comes under the authority, the mighty sovereign hand of God and His care. And we should go to Him and we should pray for relief as we look to the day, the final day, the consummation of the kingdom, when there will be none of that. 
That's what John speaks of in Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Beloved, that day is coming. Look to that day. Hopefully, pray for that day. Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. I think the other beautiful thing about this little snapshot is, is the response, isn't it, to, to Peter's mother-in-law? The response of the person who's healed, immediately she rose up and began to serve them. So immediately, again, I think points to the nature of the healing. It is not only immediate, but complete. Like, I don't know about you, but I need time after I'm better. I need time to walk it off and get better and ease back in. But she's up immediately, ready to go. Uh, it's an instant, complete, total healing. And what an example, beloved, for us to see. Jesus heals us, saves us, rescues us, and our great desire, inclination, privilege is to serve Him. Wouldn't it be odd here if she said thanks and walked away? How odd would that be? Just continue to live her life like nothing had ever happened? No, that wouldn't make sense at all, would it? Jesus changed her life right here, showed his, his power. And now she serves him. So people who are saved by Jesus, serve Jesus. People who are saved by him, serve him. He's not having to talk her into it. She does it out of this overflow of her heart, doesn't she? So here's the balance for those of you who are excited that I told you you could say no earlier. We balance it with this, this text, don't we? Jesus said no so he could say yes to something else. We sometimes say, say no so that we can serve him in other ways, other areas. But not serving him, serving ourselves, being a spectator, we don't find that, do we, in our discipleship. So friend, I want to encourage you just to evaluate your own kind of life right now, particularly as it relates to your service. And we're, we're thinking about, we're in a church, and so if you're a member of our church, think about your service in our church or other ways that you're serving the Lord. I want to just encourage you to free yourself from doing that out of some kind of obligation, some kind of way that you're sort of trying to pay God back for what he has done. Uh, that will breed uh, bitterness and all kinds of unhealthy things. Ultimately, we know God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need us. The gospel, as John Piper says, is not a help-wanted ad, right? We serve him out of our joy and our love. What a privilege. What a privilege to wait on Jesus. What a joy to serve his people. So just apply that in your own heart, in your own situation, you know? Is there bitterness creeping in? Is there even a kind of withdrawal from service? Maybe because of something that, that, that's happened and maybe we have that phrase burnout, which we're, we're familiar with. And, and let's, let's think about that. Is there, a, is there a lack of fire down deep, a, a burning in, in my relationship with Christ that is healthy? Or am I, just, am I just running around kind of doing things in my own strength? He's worthy to be served. To be served with joy. What a privilege. 
but we do it because of who He is. Look at the, the, the way that we see Jesus here. And He just, he just continues to, to, to minister in a way that I think should amaze us. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him, and He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons, so he makes a distinction, and demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Again, friends, same day. This is the same day. And so as the sun sets, the Sabbath is coming to an end, which means people don't want to, they don't want to be out breaking the Sabbath, but that's coming to an end. They're flocking to Jesus because they've heard what he can do. So all the sick, Luke says, all the disease come and they're maybe carrying friends and family with them, but they're all coming. And so there's a big crowd and we have to believe Jesus is exhausted. But look at the snapshot that we get of his heart. He could have said a word and healed them all as a group. Let me just give you guys a devotional and a healing and we'll be done. But that's not what he does. Luke tells us that he laid his hands on every one of them, every one of them, and healed them. I love this. Don't miss these little snapshots. The special care, the compassion of Jesus to take time with each person individually. You ever been at a doctor's office and it just takes forever and ever and ever and ever? And you you say things you probably shouldn't say to yourself, but then you get in there and you're like, man, the doctor's he's given me all this time. He's interested. He wants to know everything. He's taking his, so then it becomes worth it. He doesn't treat me just like a number. Somebody's going to pay him. Jesus gives this incredible personal uh, physical touch, which is out of, the, out of the realm of any Jewish tradition, questioning whether or not he would become unclean. So if you feel like Jesus doesn't have time for you, doesn't have time for our problems, he's not paying attention to my specific situation, that that we're burdening him, putting him out, I feel like I'm just always standing in line maybe, fight those thoughts with passages like this that just give you a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. He cares. Imagine him looking at you in the face, touching your hands, praying with you. Jesus, Jesus is not a fake healer. Like you, you've probably been exposed to some of these, these things, right? On TV or other, you know, we're selling tickets. We're going to make a movie, whatever it is. We're going to plant some people in the audience. Whatever, whatever that is. But there's, there's people going away from those things, I guarantee you, disappointed. No one does that here. No one walks away disappointed. Everyone is healed and given personal attention. Just stand back and look at the power in the heart of Jesus Christ. Demons flee. Diseases are cured. His word goes forth. He has authority over all physical creation. The demons knew it. Friends, do we know it? They boldly proclaimed who He was. Do we boldly proclaim who He is? He treated each person with His full attention and care. Friends, do we do that? Do we treat each person that comes across our path as an image bearer of God deserving of our full attention and care? Or are we kind of mentally already, when we see that person coming, looking at our watch? That's not what Jesus is doing. 
We are still living in the, in the, the day of the favor of the Lord our God, as Jesus puts it. He's come and ushered in His kingdom. Friends, I hope you're submitting to Him as your King. I hope you're serving Him with joy. Luther summarizes our response, what it should be to Jesus as we, as we come to passages like this. To the one with all authority who heals and exercises demons with a word. He says, that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Friends, what a privilege to share the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus offers freedom. He's the cure of our deepest disease. The demons may be opposed to God, but notice they don't deny that He exists. They don't deny His power, that Jesus is His Son. Their doom is sure. Friend, do you see Jesus? Do you see His authority? Do you see His power? And that He came to lay that down, that we might know God, that we might be forgiven of our sins and made right with Him. Would you just pray that that His kingdom would come, that His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that we would be so informed and changed by these passages that even today would be a new day for us. A day where we see your heart and we see your authority and power and it changes the way that we're anxious and the way that we're hopeless about certain things in our lives and the way that we feel so alone and on the outside looking in. Lord, we pray that you would draw your people in close, individually, by the power of your Spirit, that you would draw us in close to see who you are. Lord, thank you so much for how vivid and wonderful uh, your Word is for us. Lord, we pray that we would be, um, Lord, those that are, are given to it, to read it and to study it, and that we would see it pointing to you. And we would worship you and follow you as the one who has all authority. Lord, as our King. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.